Business, a world of difference. You're with NITV Radio, on mobile, online and on radio. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land NITV broadcasts from, Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and their elders, past and present. We also acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes and clans we broadcast to, from the mountains to the plains, from the desert to the sea, from freshwater to saltwater. Yama, and welcome to NITV Radio. Coming up in your program today, we'll hear from Paul Silva, his chilling story, how advocating to end Indigenous deaths in custody and Black Lives Matter in Sydney got him, his family and friends targeted with abuse, death threats and home invasions. Also in the program, last week a group of First Nations and other survivors of the 1950s and 60s nuclear tests travelled to Canberra calling on the government to acknowledge and address the harms caused by nuclear weapons testing in the country and to promote the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. On NITV Radio today, we also share a story from NITV's The Point program with co-hosts Narelda Jacobs and John Paul Janke and their guests discussing the concept of sovereignty and how it relates to Indigenous voice to Parliament. All these stories and more coming to you after the latest news. Bertrand Tungandami Ngaya. I am Bertrand Tungandami. Australia Day 1972 saw the first Aboriginal embassy erected outside Parliament. The native title legislation must be amended. And they've walked this land so many times before anybody came. I am sorry. Here's the news with Loana Grant. In this bulletin, legislation for a referendum on an Indigenous voice passes through Parliament with an absolute majority. Pharmacy representatives oppose the government's new prescription policies. And in cricket, Australia put up an impressive fight on day three of The Ashes. The Australian public will now get ready to have a say on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander constitutional recognition as legislation for a referendum on a voice to Parliament passed through Parliament with an absolute majority. Senate President Sue Lyons made the the announcement amid cries of opposition from independent Senator Lydia Thorpe. I declare that the Senate has passed the constitutional alteration Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice 2023 by an absolute majority. Senator Thorpe, the ayes 52 and the noes 19. Federal Parliament endorsed the question and wording of a constitutional change to recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders as the first peoples of Australia and set up a voice to Parliament and an executive government. A date is soon to be set for the referendum which is expected in October. Territory, Northern Territory Labor Senator Mullandiri McCarthy is describing today's final vote on a voice to Parliament as an historic day. She says polling across the country has shown the majority of First Nations people support an advisory body under the voice. It is a very simple request, President, uh, to be recognised in the Australian Constitution 
And yes, there are many schools of thought in terms of that constitution, but in terms of the symbolic nature of being able to be included in that constitution means a great deal to many First Nations people. Senator McCarthy added that a voice offers important systematic change in the constitution for First Nations Australians. Independent Senator Lydia Thorpe says the Indigenous voice is powerless, fake and tokenistic, as the Senate today passed legislation on a referendum for a voice to Parliament. Speaking in the chamber, Ms Thorpe was asked by Senate, by Senate President Sue Lyons to put a jacket on to cover up a T-shirt she was wearing, displaying the word gammon. Ms Lyons said slogans are not allowed in the chamber. Gammon is a word widely used by Aboriginal and by Aboriginal people and means to pretend, be inauthentic or used to describe something as pathetic. Ms Thorpe says she's ashamed the government isn't standing for a treaty. We're a problem. We're certainly a problem to this mob. We're just a problem that needs to be fixed all the time. And you're just tinkering around the edges. You won't implement the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. You've had ample time to do that in the last 32 years. You've had ample time to implement the recommendations to the stolen generations. Like, you are completely gammon, fake. You're not genuine. The Shadow Minister for Indigenous Australians made a final plea of opposition to a voice to Parliament before legislation for a referendum passed through with an absolute majority. Northern Territory Senator Jacinta Price addressed Parliament, saying she has spoken to many in communities who have great uncertainty around tangible outcomes of a voice to Parliament. Senator Price says herself and colleagues failed to receive adequate answers from the government during a meeting on Friday night. The Prime Minister wants to blindly wants us to blindly trust him to sign his blank cheque and allow his risky proposal to be enshrined forever in the Constitution when he cannot guarantee anything. Labor showed us on Friday night that they cannot define what matters relate specifically to Indigenous Australians that don't affect non-Indigenous Australians. Minister Price has become a leading voice in the No campaign and describes the voice as bureaucratic measure that fails to offer tangible solutions for Indigenous Australians. The Pharmacy Guild are concerned the federal government's new script policy could force hundreds of pharmacies to close and result in thousands of job losses. The government is looking to introduce a policy that will allow patients to receive two months' supply of medicine for the price of one. But the Pharmacy Guild's report predicts up to 665 pharmacies may close and 20,000 jobs may be lost. The Guild also recommends the government delays its dispensing policy due to begin on September 1 until a review of the economic impact is completed. Labor Minister Tanya, Pl- Tanya Plibersek told Channel 7 the policy would not affect pharmacies' revenue. And at a time when every dollar counts, getting cheaper medicines for more than 6 million Australians is a great policy. And don't forget, every single dollar we are saving through this policy is being reinvested into pharmacies. Housing advocates are urgently calling for government's multi-billion dollar housing bill to pass through Parliament, citing key reforms pushed by advocates. The Community Housing Industry Association's CEO, Wendy Hayhurst, says while the fund is not perfect, it promises a vital reform after more than a decade of government inaction. 
She says Australia is facing its worst housing crisis in living memory, with the latest census revealing 640,000 households are homeless or in a rental crisis. It's true that the Housing Australia Future Fund will not make up completely for past inaction, but through the hard work of MPs, uh, crossbenchers and my colleagues here today, critical improvements have been made in the way in which the fund will operate, not least the fact that the annual funding of $500 million is now a floor and not a cap. The $10 million fund will aim to invest earnings to build 30,000 social and affordable homes over the next five years. Senator David Van is not expected to attend Parliament for the upcoming sitting week after his resignation from the Liberal Party following sexual harassment allegations. Senator Van resigned from the party following allegations of inappropriately touching independent Senator Lydia Thorpe and former Liberal Senator Amanda Stoker. Senator Van denies those allegations. Mr Dutton has called for the Senate to resign for the Senator to resign from the Parliament altogether, but the Victorian Senator quit the party quit the party before a committee could meet to discuss the allegations against him. Independent Tasmanian Senator Jackie Lambie refused to comment on whether she thinks the Senator should resign from Parliament. She told Channel 9 she hopes Parliament could resume its normal proceedings. I think that uh, doing the right thing and shutting this down straight away with the Liberal Party um, was a great idea. Um, but once again, uh, look, I don't want to get embroiled in all this. I think there's enough people embroiled. It has used a lot of the Senate's time last week with all these accusations flying left and right. Mm. And quite frankly, and I say this politely without being offensive, but there is a lot of people saying to me on the streets, can we just get on with the job that we are supposed to be doing? Mm. Parliament is set to meet for their final sitting week before a six-week winter break. A climate protester has suspended herself from a rail bridge at the Newcastle coal ports as coordinated protests were staged at ports in Melbourne and Brisbane. Blockade Australia actions have disrupted coal shipments and motorway traffic in protest against a lack of action on climate change. The woman suspended from a bridge in Newcastle is live-streaming her solitary protest online and police are on site. She said on Monday morning as she swung several hundred metres above the ground for Kooragang Rail Bridge that the action was in response to Australia's lack of action on climate change. Blockade Australia said in a statement the protests were a part of coordinated mobilisation in response to Australia's facilitation of the climate and ecological crisis and its active blocking of impactful action towards a safe climate. New South Wales Premier Chris Minns said while people have the right to demonstrate, protests in precarious sites put emergency services, emergency service personnel at risk. And in cricket, Australia have clawed their way back into the first Ashes test after 20 minutes of mayhem left the hosts struggling on day three. England slumped 2-28 in their second innings when play ended early on Sunday due to bad weather, with the hosts leading by only 35 after losing 2-2 between, between two rain delays. Players emerged with a less optimistic attitude following the interruptions, with Australia ready to set attacking fields for the first time in the test. The downpours leave the contest well poised, heading into day four, where better weather is forecast before a 60% chance of rain on day five. It comes as England quick Ollie Robinson has attracted attention after giving Usman Khawaja an expletive-laden send-off on day three.
And now today's weather, Broome, sunny 29, Perth, mostly sunny 17, Adelaide, showers easing 14, Melbourne, showers 11, Hobart, partly cloudy 11, Albury, Wodonga, showers 9, Canberra, a shower or two, developing 10, Wollongong, becoming windy, sunny 17, Sydney, sunny 18, Newcastle, becoming windy, sunny 18, Brisbane, sunny 23, Townsville, partly cloudy 27, Cairns, partly cloudy 28, Alice Springs, partly cloudy 23, Darwin, mostly sunny 32, and the Torres Strait Islands, partly cloudy and 29 degrees. And that is NITV Radio News. Radio, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 1pm or anytime online. You're listening to NITV Radio coming to you from Nam on the Kulin Nation this Monday afternoon. Coming up next, we have a conversation with uh, Paul uh, Silva who will be sharing his story of how campaigning to end uh, black deaths in custody and uh, Black Lives Matter came at a really big cost for him and his family. We also have a story with survivors of the 1950s and 1960s nuclear tests calling on the government to address causes done, uh, the causes of uh, nuclear tests uh, on uh, their lives and also calling on the government uh, to sign the treaty on uh, the nuclear weapons ban. And from NITV's The Point program today, we have a conversation about uh, the concept of sovereignty and how it relates to voice to parliament. First, a human rights campaign that resulted in abuse and death threats. New figures in the Productivity Commission's media release show the rate of indigenous deaths in custody are at their equal worst since records began in 2007. Yet, campaigning to end this situation can land you in a difficult situation, including bring upon you abuse, home invasions, even death threats. One campaigner who has experienced such a situation is Dangati man Paul Silva. And he's joining us on NITV Radio to share his story. Paul Silva, first, thanks for joining us on NITV Radio. Thanks for having me. Can you share with us uh, your story, how campaigning for human rights resulted in insults and even death threats? Yeah, so my name's Paul Silva. I'm the nephew of David Dungay Jr., who was tragically murdered in Long Bay Correctional Facility in December of 2015. Um, by corrective officers and justice health staff. Um, I've been on the front foot since December 2015 um, demanding systematic changes in justice and accountability um, for Aboriginal deaths in custody. Um, I've also had a large involvement with the 2020 Black Lives Matter movement in Sydney's Town Hall. Um, You know, that attracted 50,000 people and you know, during the time um, it was amongst the COVID-19 um, situation and lockdowns, um, myself and many other comrades and colleagues that helped me organise the event um, did receive some death threats and, you know, tr- tremendous backlash from, you know, the wider community in regards to having the protest at a bad time at 
that they having it at a bad time, they said. So, um, you know, this is basically a, a prime example of, of what it is, um, you know, being on the front line in regards to, you know, systematic change and stuff like that, this is a prime example of how you will receive backlash and, and um, you know, death threats and, and racial racial comments, you know, on all social media platforms. Um, you know, it's very um, sensitive, um, you know, a very sensitive uh, topic for some people and it's very sensitive for myself, Um due to the fact that I've lost my uncle at the hands of corrective officers and, you know, despite us being on the front line demanding justice and accountability for David, um, that has not yet been served on the individuals involved. And yet when you campaign, just asking for accountability and uh, for the situation to be addressed appropriately, you end up receiving uh, text messages uh, threatening you and then having the police to get involved. Did they catch the person who was sending those threats, death threats? Yeah, so basically I recall one one death threat that was directed at me and my family personally. Um, In 2021, around June mid-June, we was attending a, a Black Lives Matter protest in Sydney, um, the Sydney Domain, and whilst I was driving from my hometown, Dungari country in Kempsey, New South Wales, to Sydney, um, it's approximately a four and a half hour drive, so whilst me and my, my partner and my child was driving to the um, event, we received, I received on my personal phone a, a threatening text message, um, saying that I'm nothing but a racist and a coon and that um, my my protest that I had organised um, would be shot up with a semi-automatic rifle and he basically said, I hope all you black C's can run um, from a semi-automatic. He also went on to call me a coon, a racist black dog. Um, he also went on to make of beheading myself, my missus and my kids' heads. He also went on to make disgusting comments and remarks about my deceased uncle and went on to say that he deserved it. Um, You know, initially with the threat of, um, you know, a possible terrorist attack, you know, a mass killing, um, at the time in 2021, it was a large presence at the Black Lives Matter movement, we um, engage over 50,000 in 2020 when uh, the unfortunate death of George Floyd happened. So there was a substantial amount of people and the safety of those people was paramount um, So for my family as well. So I decided to engage the Australian Federal Police and we liaged over a 15-hour period trying to work out what this guy's motive was for this and and where he was actually located and it turned out that after the process was done and they found out who he was and where he was it was determined that he actually had a rap sheet for making these kinds of disgusting remarks in regards to these movements and and not just indigenous movements um, you know, LGBTQ movements as well and stuff like, um, you know, fracking and, and coal mining. He would constantly target these and make racial threats and abuse the organisers and threaten them and their family. Um, so it was, it was determined by AFP, the Australian Federal Police, that he was um, 
approximately 13 hours away from Sydney, New South Wales, and that there was no immediate threat at that time. Yeah. Um, and many many of the attendees will will remember the large police presence at that time, um, and that may could have been in regards to the complaint of a mass shooting, and you know it just shows the prime example of being largely involved with you know taking up the government and taking on you know taking on systems um you know it shows the the backlash you may get um i recall one of my colleagues um one of my comrades being um his house being um home invaded and some some racial comments and you know that's scary for anyone in that situation and you know it really shows that you know in a way we're making move we're we're making our voices be heard and you know the, if those people that are angry are listening well everyone else is as well so there's a strong similarity between the death of George Floyd and uh, your uncle's passing in custody yeah exactly so there's definitely a strong um a strong connection with aboriginal deaths in custody and um deaths in custody within the US so there was a really really large police presence and you know, David Dungo Jr. died in the same way that George Floyd did. Um, he was held down in a prone position, which is face down on your stomach, and continuously begged that he could not breathe. And, you know, despite his begs for life and his begs um, to breathe, they was they fallen on deaf ears and, and blind eyes, I would say. And um, as a result, both men perished and died. And, you know, we see with the U.S. case that David Dungo Jr., um, we we see with the US case that um, you know the US case George Floyd they've been criminally charged and held accountable for their actions well why can't that, that happen in Australia um, many people have seen the footage of David Dungo Jr. being tragically murdered and um, you know it should be within the public the public the public's eye and within the government's eye to make systematic changes and hold those people accountable for the actions towards David Dungay. Um, and, you know, that's one of my things that I'm so determined about is making this happen and moving forward to make a better future, not just for Indigenous people, but not Indigenous people too. Um, I've seen way too many times that this system will target people un- unfairly and as a result it could be a life or death situation. And, you know, I'm, I'm very passionate and very determined to make change, not just for my kids and my family um, and not just for David Dungay Jr but as I said for the wider society to live a better place and that would be you know really really grateful Now besides organising protests you also wrote to authorities including the government itself for numerous times what was their response? So they basically declined any movement forward um, you know we've, we've wrote to work safe, safe Work New South Wales to conduct an independent investigation simply due to the fact that the death happened within a workplace facility. Um, they've declined that on a number of occasions, and I believe that's unfair. You know, they will investigate a corrective officer jamming, jamming his finger in a cell door and losing it, but they won't investigate um, them holding someone down and, unfortunately, him perishing at the hands of them. Um, you know, we've also wrote, wrote to the Department of Public Prosecutions um, in regards to conducting an independent investigation for possible criminal conduct during that event and they've also declined on a number of occasions and you know our family sat in the 
2021 parliamentary inquiry into the large rate of deaths in custody and we demanded to them alongside many other families that there be an independent body um, to investigate future Aboriginal deaths in custody. We don't want police investigating police. That doesn't sound right. That's a conflict of interest. Um, so that has still fallen on deaf ears and blind eyes, unfortunately. And um, we're determined to move forward, myself and my comrades, to make, make better changes within the near future. Um, I will, will advise some people, I will advise attendees of these movements that there is going to be one very shortly. And um, this one, I really want to make an impact and really want the government to listen. And that was uh, Dangati Man Paul uh, Silva. His story will feature on SBS's Insight uh, program uh, tomorrow night. We must now step aside for a break. When we come back, nuclear test survivors call on the government to address harm caused by nuclear tests in the 1950s and 60s and also call on the government to sign the treaty to end nuclear weapons. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. You're listening to NITV Radio coming to you on NIT, coming to you from NAM on the Cooling Nation this Monday afternoon. Well, a group of representatives from atomic test survivor communities in Australia have travelled to Canberra to share their experiences. The group is calling on the government to acknowledge and address the harms caused by nuclear weapons testing in Australia during the 1950s and 60s and to promote the treaty on the prohibition of uh, nuclear weapons. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. June Lennon was four months old when the Totem 1 nuclear bomb was detonated at MU Fields in South Australia. Where we were, the mist came over and settled on everything. There was so much secrecy and lies around the tests happening at that point. But what's what's wrong is that it's it's still happening today this this year marks the 70th anniversary of that explosion june is now part of a delegation of other first nation survivors and veterans who have descended on parliament house in canberra to speak about their experiences of the british nuclear testing program in western australia and south australia the group includes Karina Lester, Yakonjara, and a woman from northwest of South Australia. Her father went blind as a young man after the British test atomic bomb, tested atomic bomb weapons in Emu Field. She says stories like her father's need to be heard. They're sad stories, but they're true stories. And this is about truth-telling, and this is our story. This needs to be pushed through to get the Australian government to sign and ratify this treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons because they are very harmful. They are catastrophic and they harm not only country but people. They damage so much and Australia is not ready. We are not prepared if anything was to ever happen. The group is now calling on the federal government to sign the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons to ensure that history is never repeated. The international treaty would implement a ban on nuclear weapons. Green Senator Jordan Steele-John has been supporting those calls. This treaty must be signed um, in solidarity with these atomic survivors and ratified within this term. 
and the government must further commit itself to preventing the nuclearisation of Australia in its totality to protect our land and waters uh, from atomically powered vessels and to ensure that nuclear weapons are never hosted on Australian soil. From 1952 to 1963, the British, with the Australian government, conducted 12, nu- 12 major nuclear test explosions. The majority of those took place in the South Australian outback at Emu Field and Maralinga. The others off the coast of Western Australia on the Montebello Islands. Labour MP Josh Wilson is a co-chair of the Parliamentary Friends of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. We allowed through no proper cabinet or parliamentary process uh, nuclear weapons to be detonated in Australia, a number of, of them that were more powerful than the atomic weapons dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and it has left uh, a, a sort of a history of damage and harm that lasts to this day. Uh, Maralinga to this day is one of the most uh, toxic and poisoned places on the planet. Uh, At a time when the risk of the use of nuclear weapons is growing, it's a reminder that nuclear weapons are wrong. They're unacceptable. They should never have been used. They should never be used. Ms. Lennon says intergenerational impacts are still being felt today as members of her family continue to suffer ill health. We can't allow this to happen again on Australian shores. Yeah. It, everybody is, will suffer from it as much as we did. It didn't discriminate against one colour of people. It didn't, you know, like we all suffered. And, you know, black, white, brindle, if, you, if you're there and the bomb goes off, you're done for. This story brought to us by Emma Kellaway and Kiara Haynes reporting for SBS News. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. Welcome back. And our story is shared with us by NITV's The Point program. This uh, episode of The Point aired last week. This episode, host Narita Jacobs and uh, John Paul Junkie and their guests discussed the voice to Parliament. They explored the concept of sovereignty and whether a voice can extinguish it. Hello, I'm Narelda Jacobs. And I'm John Paul Junkie. Thanks for joining us on our referendum road trip. Sovereignty is one of those words that gets bandied about quite a bit. But what does it actually mean? With hundreds of distinct Aboriginal nations, it's a concept that links back deep through time, rooted in our 65,000-year-plus connection to country and revealed in our songs, our languages, our dance and our law. It's so complex and sometimes confusing, yet fundamental to everything we are. Yeah, tonight, we're going to attempt to explore sovereignty in all its forms, with the help of our brilliant panel. Welcome to Wiradjuri and Walwan lawyer and storyteller, Teela Reid. We have former Socceroos captain and co-chair of the Australian Republican movement, Craig Foster. Constitutional law expert, author and director of the Radical Centre Reform Lab at Macquarie University, Dr Shireen Morris. And Wiradjuri man and Aboriginal tent embassy activist, Murray Coe. Welcome to you all. Yeah, welcome to all of you. And it's going to be some great conversation tonight. Yeah, it really is. Now, it's such an individual issue. So, JP, what does sovereignty mean to you? Well, really, it's sovereignty 
is different to a lot of people, but for me, it's really about a person's identity. You know, you know, a lot of people take pride in their Aboriginal nation, where they come from, and represent their Aboriginal nation. But for me, sovereignty is about managing your own affairs and being respected to be able to do that. Um, mm. Being sovereign to be able to do that. Um, I take a quite a, a broad view on sovereignty, but there are very different views out there. Murray, I want to come straight to you. You grew up in the Aboriginal Ten Embassy in Canberra. What does sovereignty mean to you? Is it a sort of Aboriginal nationalism? Well, I, th- I think sovereignty is all, always about self-determination and about um, bringing our people together, bringing us closer together. So it's about us having a say over our, our affairs? Well, the Aboriginal Ten Embassy was set up for... Um, to actually bring our people together to discuss these things and bring it forward, and we're we're, we're, we're always trying to um, we're always trying to bring uh, bring our people closer together to uh, make that make that happen. And this is what the embassy was set up for was to bring um, to bring the nations all together, all the Aboriginal nations. I'm talking about all the tribes. So what we what we what we think is maybe we should be doing treaties with each other before we before we even make a treaty with anybody else. Mm. So there is sovereignty within all of the hundreds of First Nations that should be doing um, treaties with each other. We should recognise our, our own our own, our own sovereignty, sovereignty first. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Taylor, are there different types of sovereignty? Are there personal spiritual? Is there personal spiritual sovereignty? Well, I think the the issue with sovereignty is you can have many different definitions mm. for it. Sovereignty can be an individual right. It can be expressed as a collective right. Um, you know, Brother Boy here just said, you know, his sovereignty means to him self-determination. I think the issue is when it just continually keeps getting debated um, within this context, some people can, uh, because it has different meanings, meanings, it can create confusion for a lot of different people. I think in this context, within this year, um, there, we have seen many uh, frontline blackfellas demand that their sovereignty be recognised, and I think that that's something that does need to be honoured, especially when you're having conversations um, about uh, constitutional recognition or treaty, or particularly when it comes to the state um, around the world. Uh, Lots of different First Nations have entered treaty agreements. Part of that process is making sure that the state also comes to that process acting in good faith. Um, Often, if you're going into a treaty negotiation where you're absolutely recognising the other person or the other entity as sovereign um, as well. And so one of the issues I have seen play out this year is in particular while, um, you know, the conversation around the voice itself um, does not necessarily impact or cede sovereignty, I think there still are questions that need to be answered by the government in this context where, you know, the Attorney General, for example, um, in response to black advocates had said in the media, well, you know, this won't impact on uh, First Nations sovereignty, but it hasn't been put on the record. It hasn't, you know, along with the question and the amendment that it's something that the attorney has avoided writing in the explanatory memoranda. So I think that people need to be very clear um, about what they mean. And in particular, I think that blackfellas deserve a very fair and straight answer um, when it comes to yeah, conversations they do, about sovereignty. They do sovereignty. deserve a straight answer. Sharita, I might bring you in as a constitutional uh, law, lawyer, 
legal expert. Does, if we're put in the Constitution, does that cede sovereignty? So I think, first of all, it's important to acknowledge, like everyone has said so far, the word sovereignty is this hazy, ambiguous concept. The meaning changes depending on the context. But it always speaks to notions of power, um, as you said, managing your own affairs, or as you said, Murray, um, self-determination, right? Um, and it's important to understand the difference between internal conceptions of sovereignty um, and the Uluru Statement speaks to this. They talk, it talks about spiritual sovereignty, this ancient spiritual sovereignty, which through a voice will be able to give a fuller expression to Australian nationhood and the words of the Uluru Statement. Why aren't statement. politicians talking about that? Why aren't they in their conversations um, when blackfellas are demanding a very clear answer on that? Um, I think that the state needs to be very clear in responding, not just in op-eds, not just in, you know, media opinions, but actually on the state record that this will not impact First Nations sovereignty. One of the guiding principles for, um, you know, the process sharing talks about the Uluru Statement, one of the guiding principles that lots of people spoke about was it must not impact yeah. on Aboriginal sovereignty. And but, I believe that the state has to be clear Taylor, what would that. that look like? Would it look like... Uh a document, a media statement, a, a statement from the Prime Minister or the AG? Well, the attorney says that he's put it on Hansard. Um, I think he needs to direct us to that, I think, that as well. When it comes to the question, there's a constitutional alteration bill. There's also an explanatory memoranda that goes with yeah, that. Yeah. I think that these are, this is where it needs to be written. Um, and explain to people because the different notions of it, the state might mean one thing and, you know... Um, First Nations people might need another. Yeah. I think there needs to be clarity around it. And I think the, from history has warned blackfellas that they they sometimes cannot trust yeah. the state. Yeah. And that's all I'm saying when it comes yeah. to that. Shereen, I just quickly want to bring you back in. The, the earlier statement also talks about uh, Aboriginal sovereignty coexisting. That's right. And I think that's the key, key point, right? It's um, looking for a way for this ancient sovereignty to be expressed in an active way through a voice, through... A mechanism for self-determination and being heard, but in a way that is, is totally respectful and coexists peacefully with the sovereignty of Australian parliaments and governments. So that's a, a key thing to understand. And I think it's really important for everyone to understand as well that sovereignty is really a political question, yeah. right? It's not a question of legal or moral right. It's a status that is politically asserted and you look through history, it's often violently yeah. and brutally asserted through wars and military action. Um, so it's a political question that is resolved politically. It's not something that Australian yeah. courts can resolve and it's certainly not something um, that can be squashed. So I think the key word in the Uluru Statement is the coexistence, the bringing together of the ancient sovereignty with the sovereignty of Australian par parliaments in a way that's unifying so and consolidating. Where does the Commonwealth Head of State then fit in uh, all of this? Craig, yeah. you are a human rights activist, yeah. you're a passionate Republican. Where does King Charles sit with you? Well, the, the issue, as far as I can see, is that the future of Australia is two things, is looking back to reconcile or, or conciliate about our history and to acknowledge, as you know, the Mabo case did, the sovereignty of First Nations peoples and that that then should coexist with the remainder of the Australian people and that it's a partnership in future. And this is where a treaty comes in. I think that this is, the, this is our country between us and that we come together uh, in unity 
um, to share this beautiful continent in future. And, uh, and in our view, the Crown and Charles, as you say, can play no part in that. This has to be a compact between us, between the Australian people. And part of that is what we're going through this year, is trying to wrestle with these concepts as to what happened at, at, you know, from 1788 and beyond. And by doing so, um, we're able to at least start to walk this path of healing so that we can all look each other in the eye, say that everyone here is worthy and that this is our country to move forward with. Mm -hmm. Mario, just want to quickly come to you. Of course, 50 years of the Ten Embassy was a couple of years ago. What do you think of the the founding four men who founded the Ten Embassy? What would you think they would say that we're still talking about treaties or recognising sovereignty, you know, 52 years after they sort of put it on the national agenda, what would what would they be saying about us today? <laughs> um, well, I don't know if I would say, be saying um, maybe maybe it's about time that um, Australia um, starts looking in its own backyard and starts um, maybe starts paying compensation for the blood that they spilled in this country, mm. not just Australia but also the Crown. Mm. Because um, a lot of people that, that actually came through the embassy, they, a lot of people died and died, um, gave, given their blood, sweat and tears for the embassy. So what, what we was all about was independence yeah. and, and gaining our independence yeah. and seeking it. Yeah. And we'll take a look uh, further at the Ten Embassy later in the show. Well, it's actually quite apt. We were talking about the, the King's holiday this weekend and, of course, yesterday was the King's birthday. And Narelda, congratulations on your Order of Australia Medal. Now, it was in recognition, of course, of your incredible service in the media and the community over 25 long years, <laughs> hard years. And, of course, you do a lot of great work as an ambassador in, in many organisations. But I know it's been a challenging decision for you. What were your feelings in accepting this award? It's, thank you, JP. Thanks, thanks very much for that. I really appreciate it. Um, it's complicated. Uh, I had to think long and hard before accepting the award and I wanted to accept it um, in in a gracious way um, because it was thanks for the work that I've done over the last 23 years and I didn't want to refuse, you know, refuse that that gratitude, I guess, that expression of gratitude. Um, I thought about all of the First Nations people that have gone before me that have also accepted um, these types of honours and their belief in needing to be in the room to be able to change it. And so that, that, was, my, that was my motivator because I'm a firm believer of being in the room to, mm. to change it. Uh, yesterday, I was very pleased mostly with the, the coverage uh, that I received, but there was, one, there was one interview that I did on the radio and it went for 13 minutes. And at the end of the 13 minutes, I got off the phone and I was like, I didn't once talk about my career in the media. <laughs> it was all about being asked, how did I feel about being accused of being a hypocrite? Mm-hmm. You know, because I'd said some comments, as a lot of us have, um, about, the, about the role of the monarchy in, in this country. Um, Teela and Craig, you were on that very um, the day when the yeah, King exactly. was coronated. Mm, really important. And that was uh, The Points co-host Narelle Jacobs ending this part of uh, last week's episode of The Point. Narelle Jacobs and uh, John Paul Janke are actually travelling around the country talking about uh, the upcoming uh, referendum. Just for your information, The Point airs on NITV on Tuesday nights at 8.30pm. And if you want to watch uh, this episode of or any other episode of The Point, just go to SBS On Demand. Thank you.
sbs.com.au slash NITV radio. And uh, as we age close to the end of today's program, I'd like to invite you, as usual, to check our website, sbs.com.au slash NITV radio, and just continue our conversations as well on social media platforms, especially Facebook. I'm Bertrand Tungandame, thanking you for your company this uh, Monday afternoon. Till next time, bye for now. Yalu.